1: Hello and welcome to the Flexible Advisor podcast. I'm Laura Gregg and I'm joined with my co-host David Partain on this beautiful, warm, sunny day in Chicago. Hello, David. Hello, Laura. It is. I'm sad we're not doing this outdoors, but I am excited about today's podcast. (laughs) I am too. And the Flexible Advisor, as our listeners know, we seek to invite guests that will provide unique insights and actionable ideas for advisors that want to fine-tune or grow their businesses all while deepening those important client relationships. David, you know, throughout the podcast, we've discussed the lack of diversity within our industry, and much of our discussion has been about how the industry can attract and retain more women or people of color. But today, we're going in a different direction. Today, we're going to extend the discussion to focus on how we can better engage with younger people and the LGBTQ community. I am thrilled to have Joey Stemmel join us today. Joey is an Ameriprise Financial Advisor with the Riverstone Wealth Advisor Group in Richmond, Virginia, and teaches in the CFP program at Virginia Commonwealth University. At age 30, he is president of the Financial Planning Association's NextGen National Board, and an FPA Pride Planners host, which supports LGBTQ planners and provides education to planners who serve LGBTQ Americans. He is also president of FPA of Central Virginia and serves as a chair of its two-day education symposiums. With credentials like these, it's not surprising that last year, Joey made the investment news 40 under 40 list of outstanding young people ready to take the financial advice industry to the next era. Congratulations, Joey, and welcome to the Flexible Advisor podcast.
2: Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and I certainly appreciate the the kind introduction and I look forward to talking with you both on engaging with the next generation of financial planners and those in the LGBTQ community.
3: Okay, Joey, I'm exhausted just hearing about that lineup of volunteer work. Does that even leave much time for your day job or sleep?
2: <laughs> you know, I get, the, I get the sleep question a lot and uh, after hearing that introduction, it does sound, <laughs> I feel like a little more exhausting than it actually is, but I guess I'm, I'm thankful to have so many great people surrounding me both at work and in some of these volunteer groups. Uh, I know it might sound cliche, but I think that makes all the world of the difference to be surrounded by great volunteers and great team members.
3: Yeah, you're right. All right. So you have a very interesting background. So I'd like to kick this off by having you tell us a little bit about more about your background and how you got interested in this industry. What has your path been and what does your job look like today?
2: Sure. So I, you know, grew up the youngest of six, and I was lucky to have a mom who started talking to me about money, you know, at a really early age. And I always think it's funny to kind of share this. You know, growing up, I feel like I was a, a bit of a troublemaker. Yeah, you know, I spoke my mind. I think at a younger age, to try to push boundaries in school, and now I feel, you know, I'm rewarded and praised uh, as a leader for speaking my mind and pushing boundaries. So it's funny how, you know, as you progress in life, you get rewarded for mm-hmm. those types of behaviors, but You know, my mom had a start, you know, at a really early age, we had a budget and I was always fascinated with the concept of budgeting and savings. And the first savings account I ever opened up was actually at a bank that was in our local grocery store. So I used to love going grocery shopping with my mom because, you know, she would let me go to the bank, get that deposit slip, and I could see how much money I had. And growing up, I thought maybe, you know, I could be a lawyer or I thought about becoming a history teacher. I was always fascinated with learning. So I'm happy that I'm able to teach now at VCU. So I eventually became, you know, the teacher I wanted to be. But you know, at a younger age, even though I liked budgeting and savings, I didn't know that this was a job that you could do. I didn't know about financial planning And i remember my first exposure to investments was when i was 14 or 15 my mom let me use uh, some of my money from that savings account to buy an american funds mutual fund i could see the money going up and down and starting to learn about the concepts of investing but i remember the reason why i wanted to buy this mutual fund was because the biggest holding was coca-cola so as a kid who liked soda I thought being able to own shares in coca-cola was a really cool idea but eventually I enrolled at Virginia Commonwealth University and I knew I wanted to do business and then there's kind of the the pizza party that changed my life so about halfway through my freshman year a professor and a student came into our class and you know I don't even remember what they said I just remember they said we're having pizza across the hall in ten minutes you know, as a college student, I was there. That's how they get you. I was with the free pizza and and it ended up being a meeting that was the the VCU chapter of the Financial Planning Association. So the chapter was just getting started. We learned a little bit more about financial planning. I said, this sounds a little bit more like the finance I want to do. You're talking about investing and budgeting and savings and tax planning. And there was a a planner there who talked about their day-to-day life. So you know, I ended up getting involved with the the student chapter and I got an internship my, my second semester at UBS and started working there, enjoyed it. And about 12 to 18 months later, that led to an internship at Ameriprise Financial, which actually got through connections in FPA. Mm-hmm. And then in my junior year, our financial planning director let us know that we were going to enter FPA's student planning challenge. And we had a younger program. So we had never done this challenge before, so there was a lot to learn, uh, and I didn't really know what to expect, but there was three of us on the team. The first part of it was a case study. So you got a case study about a hypothetical family, and they had some concerns similar to when you're working with clients, and ultimately, the first part of this challenge is to put together a financial plan, and you know, we submitted it. We were hoping at that point to get top 10 because the top 10 teams get flown out to the annual conference which that year I think was in San Diego. So beautiful San Diego. We were excited about potentially getting in there and eventually we got the notice that we had placed in the top 10. And you know I'm going to be honest with you know the both of you, you know, and I remember I'm the youngest of six, so my mentality shifted from that I hope we qualified to, we better get first. <laughs> and eventually we were flown out there and uh, competed in that second portion of the challenge, which was actually a presentation to a panel of judges. And then the third part was a trivia bowl. And although we didn't get first, we ended up getting third, which was tremendous. And, and that whole process really solidified for me that this was something I wanted to do. I really enjoyed the casework, putting together the financial plan, presenting it to, you know, a panel of judges who were supposed to be the clients. And then the next year we actually got in the top ten again and got to go to, you know, San Antonio. And that was a, a tremendous experience. We didn't place top ten, but it you know did you know teach us about setbacks because we were so focused on the presentation to the judges that we forgot the USB port that had our PowerPoint. <laughs>
3: Oh, so no. someone
2: on the team with me, we had to run back to the hotel and uh, get our PowerPoint. We ran back, of course, it started downpouring on us. So we're running into the, the auditorium to present in front of the judges. And we're, we're soaking wet at that point. But it just teaches you to kind of think on your feet and you never know what's coming your way. But you know, after that second competition, I graduated from VCU, still earning uh, interning at prize, And they offered me a job as a pair planner where I was able to work directly under a financial advisor to learn, you know, how to prepare for meetings, do the financial plans, client service, and I was able to sit for the various license exams in my CFP. And then today, currently a financial advisor, still on the same team, coming up on 10 years, Mm -hmm. if you include my intern year. So I feel like I've been in the profession for a long time. And in that role, I uh, work with about 60 households where I'm the lead planner and I help support an advisor on about 120 households and in addition to those client-facing duties one of the favorite parts of my job is working with our interns so we still have an intern program and i get to work with the interns today and you know i just love being able to have been a part of that system and now kind of keep it going and helping the next generation of professionals as they enter into financial planning
3: okay I, Joy, I am just fascinated by this. I'm going to back this conversation up because I've had five kids and none of them can even spell budgeting. You're telling me you liked it at a young age?
2: <laughs> I liked it. I liked it at a young age for whatever reason. I think I, you know, my mom just taught us about the importance of. Yeah, I wouldn't say we were poor by any means, but in a household yeah. with you know six kids, it's a lot of mouths to feed. Yeah. So just trying to be smart and budget with the money was always kind of fun, mm-hmm. fun to me. So
3: <laughs> that's good. That's great. I'm, I'm, you have a good mom. That's awesome. All right. So I'd love to learn more about the ties that the FPA has with universities. Is the engagement with universities at a chapter by chapter level or is it more at the FPA national level?
2: Yeah, it's a, a great question. It's one we get a lot, and you know, I'll probably answer this like a true financial planner. And the answer is, it depends. <laughs> it's both. Love to love to throw those words around. So at the top, you know, FPA as an organization really values the work and the effort of you know the universities and the faculty, because they're really changing the landscape of the financial planning profession as they continue to graduate more people that are graduating with these financial planning certificates or bachelor's degrees and are able to sit for the CFP exam. And you know, FPA's goal is to support students as they transition from the student communities into becoming CFP professionals. And yeah, we know engaging with students at an early age, early time is a tremendous value add, uh, especially with the student chapters we have. So the students are learning about FPA, they're learning about the resources out there at the undergraduate level, and then upon graduation, they can get involved with NextGen and the various chapters across the country, not a you know national FPA level. You know, I'm gonna give her a shout out. So Destry Downing mm. is the staff point for student chapters and she provides communication to professors and uh, announcements, resources. Um, they continue to provide that programming at the FPA annual conference, both through the financial planning challenge, but also by allowing students to attend and meet various professionals from across the country. And I have to say, you know, back in, I guess it was 2019 in Minneapolis, you know we could still get in you know large groups of people that's where you know the annual conference was in 2019 i sat in and listened to some of those student presentations and i don't think my team would have placed in the top 10 i mean these students are incredible you know, the way they were so articulate with the judges and the recommendations that they were making i was like oh this is, there's no chance my group would have uh, participated at that point but on the local chapter level something really important is the overall engagement of student chapters as well. So we get some stuff coming from National FPA on the local level as well. We have amazing chapters across the country that wanna work and they wanna partner with the universities. They are able to provide more benefits to students that can help them jumpstart and advance their careers. Similar to what happened with me and you know, I got an internship through the FPA and that's landed me now in a job and a profession and the collaboration and that partnership between the local chapters and the universities is completely customized and structured on the local level. So for example, here in Central Virginia, we're able to provide funding to the student chapters, do pizza parties and bring in speakers. Um, We're also able to provide scholarship funding. We have a CFP exam scholarship for students and younger planners. We supply volunteers for mock interviews, so this is something that we've customized over the years for both groups to benefit from, and you have to give another shout out to the Virginia Tech program led by Dr. Litton. It's one of the best programs in the country, and we're lucky to be able to partner with them over the last 10 to 15 years. That's
3: awesome. Well, you obviously have some goals for the FBA Next Gen as their president. And so what are you most excited to accomplish? And what programs do you hope you can lay the groundwork for in the future?
2: Very exciting to be stepping into this role. And I always like to start by just acknowledging and reflecting upon a very crazy challenging year, yeah. which was last year, right, yeah. in 2020. Many people across the country, our, our team started 2020. With a lot of excitement. We had a comprehensive strategic plan uh, and we had to pivot to address you know, not only immediate term but longer term impacts of you know, the pandemic on our next-gen members. And last year really reminded me as an FPA member of FPA's community and our sense of connection to each other. So we adapted in 2020 and we're going to continue to provide programming and events for our members on whatever platform we end up in 2021 right so whether it's zoom or shifting back to some sort of hybrid events or in-person events later on and this year, but our you know aspiring and early stage professionals they want to be able to network and you know I guess we're lucky from nextgen's perspective that our members have been able to adapt better to uh, compared to other groups to the mostly virtual Experiences over the last 12 months. So, people that we don't have an age limitation, but primarily our members are under 30 in the next gen space. So, we were able to shift to Zoom and meeting online maybe better than some other um, members in FPA. And our next gen leadership team spent the last three months of 2020 really reflecting and working on our 2021 goals. Our strategic focus is around four areas. So, creating a successful gathering in one day experience which is our annual conference two years ago it was in New Orleans last year was in Las Vegas but it got canceled and we shifted to an online um, conference and this is a conference built by next-gen members for next-gen members the second focus is on supporting our local and national volunteer leaders and this is an area that we're really trying to focus on how to develop next-gen members as leaders not only in FPA in our profession, but also at their work. So what are the skill sets that they can build on by being organizational leaders? The third is to create intentional community. So we know that it's very challenging across the board. A lot of people aren't feeling as connected as before. So we're trying to create intentional community for our members across the country. And the last piece is expanding the media footprint of nextgen members. And so this is focusing on writing articles by nextgen planners for people maybe in their 20s and 30s. So what is it like to buy, you know, your first home? How do you set yourself up for that? Those types of ideas and we've increased our leadership team from 7 to 11 volunteers. And that's going to allow us to better expand and service, you know, the needs of our next gen members, our group of volunteers. I love it. We're all across the country. So from California to Virginia, up to Philadelphia. So we have you know, people all across the country um, made up on our leadership team. And although, you know, I get the honor, I guess the fun of serving as president in 2021, I'm lucky to be surrounded by a strong and passionate group of people that will help us implement that focus. And we have over 50 leaders across the country who are still providing ongoing programming and events. So we're lucky to have next gen leaders across the country. And I think the last piece that I'm most excited about is, you know, FPA has actually hired a staff person whose primary focus will be on outreach, programming, and support for NextGen members and our NextGen leadership teams. The streamlined integration and staff expertise will allow us to continue to drive our vision moving forward kind of outside the volunteer realm, uh, which I think will really help us succeed moving forward to engage NextGen. And I think the program I'm most excited to see continue and to continue to grow is the FPA externship, which is led by Hannah Moore and Destry Downing. And last year it was arguably you know one of the most amazing programs I feel like in the history of the profession. And there were so many new faces and career changers that were exposed to the career in financial planning. So something I think back on my own journey. Not knowing that financial planning was an option, a, a profession. So there was over 1,900 aspiring CFPs in this program, and it started as a response to COVID and lost internships. You know, back in March and April, a lot of groups that normally supply internships were canceling, canceling those internships because everyone was working from home. And so there was a ton of students and a ton of programs that reached out to FPA and said, hey, like we don't have anything to do over the summer. And so Hannah and Destri were able to help pivot and put on this program. And really the goal is to provide members the opportunity to see how financial planning is done at different firms and with different types of clientele. So the members receive training on everything from investment planning to cash flow planning to estate and the tax planning, but also exposure to financial planning software. And the best, I think the coolest part of this is that they're able to receive 160 hours of learning experience from the CFP board.
1: That is fantastic. And as well as your enthusiasm, Joey, we recently conducted an advisor wellness study. And uh, what we learned was that advisors were were very happy with their roles, although they were still stressed. I can tell you just love what you do. It just shines through. Our audience is primarily financial advisors. Not a surprise to you. Most financial advisors are still baby boomers, maybe late Gen X. And as I'm talking to a lot of advisory firms about trying to build diverse teams, I unfortunately hear the same complaint over and over. And that is that younger professionals expect too much, they expect it too soon. They're not wanting to, you know, I'm using air quotes, pay their dues. You know, I I think that this mentality is not just in the financial planning world, I think it exists probably across many industries. But, you know, I'm seeing the younger professionals that you just described coming out of school with all their CFP coursework done, doing complex planning, whether that's helping as an intern or in these competitions, and they've got relevant experience that could add value from, from day one. But it, it, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Are expectations too high for some of these new, newly trained professionals coming into our industry. And what advice would you give to firms that may help them capture that talent, but retain it for the long-term?
2: Yes, I love this question. Uh, I've gotten this question a lot over the last few years. And I think it's first to acknowledge the differences. There are large differences on how planners came into the profession 20 to 30 years ago compared to how people are coming into the profession today. And I even reflect on my own path and recognize that it's different today than it was 10 years ago when I was first starting to intern. And there's a great YouTube video done by some CFP program directors from across the country called the 12 tribes of financial planning. And it shows that there's a ton of career paths in the profession, whether you're at a A wirehouse at an RIA, working at a credit union, doing teaching and research at universities, working at a broker dealer. So there's a ton of career paths in today's financial planning profession. But I think it's important for the new profession professionals and our more experienced professionals to at least recognize where the other group is coming from, because I think at that point, you can start making progress to really understand where the other side is coming from. So, as a new planner, i really tried to recognize and understand that the people I work for right now used to work 12 hour days, a half day on Saturday. They were entirely commissioned so that if they didn't get new clients, they didn't make money and they probably didn't stick around long in the playing profession. Then, you know, 20, 30 years. 20 to 30 years later, I look at myself, I was hired as a pair planner. I had a flat salary, I had incentives to get licensed to take my exam. So those are two entirely different experiences. And I agree a hundred percent that entry-level planners, I think as you put it, Laura, are better technically trained on financial planning topics, software than in the past. But maybe, you know, we don't have the soft skills or the sales skills of planners past maybe we can improve on how to engage with a client in a meeting or improve on how to get clients to actually execute your financial planning recommendations. So those types of skills, I know the younger planners could work on. And Laura, you mentioned that the experienced professionals have talked about younger professionals that maybe expect too much or they expect it too soon. And there's that pay your dues mentality in the industry. And to that, I ask, What's the price? How much do you want me to pay? And and for how long? And I've personally seen this and having a pathway laid out can make a big difference to the younger planner. What certifications do you expect I have? What skill sets do you want me to have or refine? Do you want me bringing on new clients? Is there a specific metric that you're looking for? Laying out those types of expectations i think is so important to the younger professionals as a millennial i feel like i've heard my whole life that we're all about participation trophies we're afraid of hard work uh, and i think that's wrong you know i teach i'm a financial planner i help lead in my profession and i don't feel like i'm an outlier i know a ton of other young professionals that are doing the same type of work And I think laying out that path for your employees is so important. Misunderstandings can lead to people leaving because they feel as though they have no opportunity or a small opportunity. A person may go talk to firm X that has that career path laid out. Your firm could be the better choice, but because you haven't articulated that, they decide to leave. And I think it's the same thing we deal with sometimes as planners. Are you articulating your value to your client? You could be the better advisor, but if you don't articulate that value, or if your client doesn't see that value, they could end up leaving you. And you know, my last point before you know get off my soapbox is I feel like there's a tremendous number of opportunities for younger, younger planners out there. And there still isn't a large amount of new people coming into the profession. So it's kind of that supply and demand. So if you don't try to be intentional about retaining your employees, they may leave you. And you know, just going back to that numbers game, you may have to pay up to retain your talent because you could have a really good person on your team. But there's just a ton of opportunities out there.
1: So, Joey, I I agree with you on all fronts. For a while, I I managed a a small group of younger people, and they amazed me every single day with their creativity. I would tell them what to do and how to get it done. They would get it done a week faster and not use any of my direction for how to get there. (laughs) But they they understood the outcome and they delivered on the outcome and uh, in in ways that just weren't because I hadn't done it that way before. I totally agree, and we're we're so challenged with this advisor shortage coming up, and you know, I mean, we're we're seeing it already, and. More and more people are are skipping over the advisory and they're going straight to digital platforms at Fidelity, Schwab, you name it. Mm -hmm. It, It's so critical to have a a diverse team of advisors and then to give them the incentive to stay because they're going to be helping you build your business. And, and I think I might have mentioned earlier in this uh, podcast, but Flexures did a diversity study. We, we, we surveyed advisors and we surveyed investors. And you know, with the advisors, we talked to them about building out teams. And, and were they thinking about building out diverse teams? The answer was no, not really. We're going to revisit that in 2021, and hopefully we'll see some changes. Within that study, we looked at five-year retention rates, and we found across the board that those firms that had a diversity, equity, and inclusion program in place actually did a much better job of retaining diverse talent. And of all the measures of diversity, age, gender, race, disability, LGBTQ, the worst retention rate for firms without a DEI program was for the LB, LGBTQ employees, where those firms without a diversity, equity, and inclusion program had a five-year retention rate of just six percent of that group, versus almost forty percent for firms that did have a program in place. And you know, as a point of comparison, by race those firms without a diversity, equity, and inclusion program had a retention rate of 21% versus 57%. So huge differential there. And I'm wondering, Joey, do these figures surprise you at all? Why do you think retaining LGBTQ talent is such a struggle?
2: Sure, and without, you know, seeing the specifics of that study, I'd say, you know, no, I'm not surprised. I, I think just like anything else in life, you have to be intentional and committed to make changes. So, you know, if I want to get in better shape and and lose some weight, I need to be committed and intentional about my diet and my gym schedule. Cuz if I don't do that, I might find it hard to, you know, lose weight and get in shape. And I think the same type of mindset can be applied to a D&I program in that if you're not intentional and you don't have some sort of program laid out or a plan laid out, you're probably going to find it hard to retain that diverse talent. And I think as a whole, people no longer have to hide who they are. And there are enough companies out there that you can find someone that's going to align with your value and with your culture. So you can be unapologetically you. So people from diverse backgrounds no longer have to sit around at a company who doesn't value them as a person they can go out and launch their own firm. They can find a company who walks the walk and embraces them as a person. So I think that's a great trend to see. LGBTQ rights have dramatically changed over the last 20 to 30 years. So the Human Rights Campaign puts together their Equality Index score through a survey each year. And I think most recently, you know, more than half of Fortune 500 companies had a perfect score. So there's been improvements overall, but that can vary from company to company. And looking at the financial planning profession, there's so many independent financial planning firms or RIAs or people affiliated with the larger brokerage firms or wirehouses that can run their practices very independent, which can be for better or worse. So I think we see trends in companies be more inclusive, but financial planning as a whole Still, oftentimes, has small companies or small teams uh, that may not be you know, committed to that DEI program.
1: As a FPA Pride Planners host, which supports LGBTQ planners and provides education, which is so important to planners who are serving the LGBTQ community. Tell us what advisors can do and what their firms can be doing to attract and retain LGBTQ clients, but also LGBTQ employees.
2: Sure. And uh, you first want to give a shout out to my fellow hosts. So, Jim, Marta, Laura, and Robert, they all help uh, contribute to our organization's success. And, you know, give you a background on Pride Planner. So, it was a standalone organization started back in the 90s. Focused primarily on how to work with clients who were unmarried, because at that time same-sex couples were not able to get married legally here in the U.S. It was a tremendous organization over a you know 20-plus year time frame, and then when marriage equality happened, they decided to you know kind of merge with FPA. They had always aligned with FPA, so the Pride Planners annual conference typically happened the day before FPA's annual conference. So there was a lot of synergy already naturally there. And they decide to formally merge. And, you know, I always like to start off when we talk about working with LGBTQ Americans is that there's just a tremendous opportunity out there to help a large number of people on how to attract and retain the clients. You know, for those that don't know, the US LGBTQ community has an estimated buying power of of north of trillion dollars and 80 percent of LGBTQ investors prefer to work with firms that support the community. So I think serving the needs isn't different compared to you trying to find a specific niche, maybe in your community. You can follow the same type of path and discovery. So are you involved in that community? Do you do events with that community? Do you have an understanding of that community? Are you trying to learn everything you can about that community? So sometimes people have niches for specific companies. So it's like are you involved with that company? Do you understand the issues and concerns of those employees at that company? Do you understand the benefits? So it's the same type of thought process if you're trying to work with LGBTQ, you know, Americans and trying to understand not only those financial issues associated with the community but also the legal and personal issues with the community as a whole. So You know, are you an ally and are you open about being an ally? That can make the world of a difference to a person coming to meet with a financial planner. Are you supporting LGBTQ-specific organizations or groups in your community? I even think back to specific language. So if you have a male client, do you automatically ask if they have a wife? Or does your data gathering form list husband or wife? Or does it list spouse one, spouse two? So relatively small things like that can help make a difference when you're trying to make your practice more inclusive. And those are the types of issues to recognize outside of the traditional financial planning topics. And I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, those in the LGBTQ community from a generational perspective can have different views. So those in the 60s and 70s have had a different experience compared to those in their 30s and 40s, which is different from those in their 20s. So talking about things like the Stonewall riots, compared to the implementation of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, compared to when marriage equality took place. You know, sometimes having a member on your team who is a part of the community or someone who's a passionate ally could help you better engage with your clients in that space. Doing training on LGBTQ terminology and concepts, understanding the financial disparities and the needs for the LGBTQ client communication using correct names and pronouns are also ways to make your team more inclusive. And, you know, the Supreme court ruled in 2015 that marriage is a right guaranteed to same sex couples. So just six years ago. And, you know, the running joke is that now gay divorce is new, right? You know, it's relatively new and there's still so many people out there who choose to be unmarried to their partners. And so, while the gains in recognition and legal protections were significant, not everyone's going out and getting married just because you can. And same-sex marriage recognition alone can't solve other LGBTQ-specific issues, so workplace issues, housing discrimination, uh, you know, discrimination surrounding the adoption process. And I think you know, groups like FPA Pride Planners are tremendous if you're interested in learning more about how to work with LGBTQ clients. And you know, we've had webinars that discuss family planning, including adoption and surrogacy. We've talked about working with LGBTQ clients. We've talked about how to be out and proud as a financial planner in your practice. And you know, we have a webinar coming up that's gonna talk about aging as a member of the LGBTQ population and how that can be difficult with, you know, cultural issues or discrimination in senior living facilities. So I think part of it is just trying to better understand the concerns and needs of the community.
1: Wow, that uh, was really helpful. There are things that you just shared that weren't weren't even top of mind for me and I'm sure for so many advisors.
3: Well, Joey, I feel like we could talk for much longer because you are in fact have... Great enthusiasm for the topic, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. However, we'd really like to give a couple of action items at the end of our podcast. And given your involvement in the FPA, what are the most impactful reasons for advisors to get involved in the local chapters? And what has been most beneficial for you personally by being so actively involved in your local chapter and in the national FPA?
2: Sure, and you know by getting involved with a, a local chapter, even on the national level, planners and, and those in the financial planning profession can you know partner with other planners to you know welcome uh, a diverse group of peers to grow as a financial planner and really help shape the future of the financial planning profession. Uh, FPA chapters across the country provide opportunities to you know build business relationships. Strengthen your you know, voice as it relates to legislation, legislative and regulatory issues, pro bono opportunities, advocacy, other areas of interest like women in finance, NextGen. So there's a ton of different groups you can get involved with under the FPA umbrella. For me personally, I've just made some tremendous friends people not only here in Central Virginia, but across the whole country. So even going back to our Pride Planners group. So, you know, we have someone down in Georgia, up in New York, up in Seattle, over in California. People that I probably would not have met if I was not involved with FPA. And I'm actually benefiting from my circle at FPA right now. So just having people to ask questions to. So I'm dealing with something that I'm trying to get feedback from people. Where I don't really know where to go, uh, it's like a compensation thing. Like I don't really know where to go to, and so I've been able through FPA, for instance, last week, the start of a call, we kind of talked through some of the stuff I was dealing with, and then that Friday I had another call scheduled with someone to help me walk through and think through something. I have a call, you know, later today at 4 p.m. to talk through that piece as well. So just having connections and people out there that you can lean on and think through um, some complex financial planning issues or, or things like compensation. FPA has been a tremendous organization. And so I've benefited from it from the long term, right, by getting an internship, making impact in the profession. But, you know, I'm still benefiting from it today.
3: Well, Joey, it's been a real delight to have you on the podcast today. And we look forward to speaking with you again very soon. Thank you. Thank you. If you would like to know more about the FPA, just visit financialplanningassociation.org. That's financialplanningassociation.org. If you like this podcast, you may also like the other FlexShares podcast called Funds in Focus. Check it out today, wherever you get your podcasts. For myself and Laura Gregg, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us on today's episode of The Flexible Advisor. Thank you for listening
0: to the Flexible Advisor Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider the FlexShares investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC distributor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. We make no commitment to update the content herein. It is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters.